The Bible says God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. This um, Advent, we're looking at uh, the story of Christmas through the eyes of slave to child. And in some ways, the two are really made for each other. Because in Christmas and in this idea of slave to child, people, we are at the heart of the Christian faith. In some ways, we're at the boundaries of Christian orthodoxy. We find these things um, both easy to believe and hard to believe, don't we? They're easy to believe because they're all over the Bible. They're hard to believe because... We can hardly imagine ourselves living out the reality of these things. So what most religious people do is we believe the doctrine, then deny the implications. That's how we handle it. It allows us to state what is orthodox while we still fumble around with the implications of these things. I hope I can convince you that this idea of God as a father and we as his children was at the heart of the controversy that Jesus had with the Pharisees. They had a fundamental disagreement over the nature of God. Jesus kept calling him father like he knew him in a way that no one else in his day knew him. Then he had the audacity to call himself a son. Well, the Jews knew better. They knew that God was far off and had no sons. He was one. And so this was at the heart of the controversy. Jesus said to them one time, I have performed many good works in your presence for which of these good works do you stone me? They said, for none of these good works, but for this, that you, a mere man, profess to be the son of God. That was the basis of the controversy. It was hard for them to believe in a God that really existed. They had another one in their minds. And I think the same struggle is true with us, isn't it? And no matter how long we hear the story, we are like the prodigal that keeps coming back and says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupts us in midstream. He won't have it. He won't allow you to return on any other terms. He interrupts you and says to the real servants, Go get the sandals and the signet family ring and kill the calf and get my robe for this son of mine was lost and now he is found. That's your story. Somebody say something besides Zen. I mean, Zen, he's all over this thing. That's a, we could quit. We won't, but we could. I've been seized uh, this last um, week uh, with the story of the strange case of Clive Waring. It's believed to be the, um, the weirdest case of amnesia 
uh, in the history of the world. This man was born in 1938, I think it was. He's an accomplished musician, has performed in literally all of the places in Europe. He sang in Westminster Cathedral. He's a specialist in 16th, 17th, 18th, and 20th century music. This guy is classically trained. His specialty is choral music, and so he gathers ensembles of amateurs and takes them on tours throughout Europe and takes 15th and 16th century musical scores complete with the original instruments and rewrites the music so they can perform them in the 20th century the way that they did uh, in the 1500s. This dude is a brainiac when it comes to music. He went back and resurrected music from the 1500s, rewrote it, and they performed it for the royal wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Di, and this is where all of you go, ah. But in 1985, at the age of 47 years old, while he was at the peak of his career, he suffered a, um, a form of encephalitis, and the virus attacked his central nervous system, and he forgot literally everything, everything, everything. He now has between a 7 and a 30-second window of memory. That means every 30 seconds... His memory restarts. He can't remember what happened 30 seconds ago. You can tell him. You can have a conversation. He can say intelligent things. But 30 seconds from now, he'll forget who you are and he'll forget what he said to your question 30 seconds ago. He's not angry. He's not mean. He's not depressed. He's not afraid. But for the life of him, he cannot remember who he is. Every 30 seconds, he believes he woke up. So he writes in a journal, now I am fully awake. And then about a half hour later, he will write the same line. No, no, now I am fully, he thinks he woke up. Every 30 seconds. He um, has children. He remembers that from before 1985, from his first wife, but he can't remember their names. And he is madly in love with his second wife, Deborah. But for the life of him, he does not know who she is. So every time that he sees her, he is just full of joy to meet her again, it says, because he either believes he's never met her before or he hasn't seen her for a very long time, even if she just left the room. Crazy. So he can do some things, but he's lost what they call episodic memory. That is, he doesn't do anything in the context of where it came from. He has what they call procedural memory that allows him to perform habits one right after the other. He does things and doesn't know why he does them because he can't connect them to anything larger. When I read this story, I thought I was reading about us. I wonder sometimes if our problem is not so much unbelief as amnesia. We don't know who we are. And even though we gather every seven days for worship, 
It's like we've never met God or haven't seen him in a long time. And so we're just full of joy. And people, I believe in that moment, it is genuine and it is true. But for the life of us, we just, I just don't know who he is. And so we've fallen into a series of habits or patterns in our Christian lives more like a procedural memory. We do them without even knowing why we do them or the larger story that they're connected to. My wife is sure I have this problem. <laughs> I'm thinking we all have it to some degree, this loss of memory and the power of the story of the incarnation is that it reminds us of who we are and where we came from. Our identity is at stake in this story of the incarnation. And in true amnesia, we have forgotten two fundamental things. We have forgotten who he is, and so every few days we reintroduce ourselves in genuine ways, but cannot remember who he is. And so last week we said, God is a father. That's who he is, and he wants to father you. Now, I don't suspect you'll remember that. <laughs> but part of recovery is to have our memory restored. The other part is that we have forgotten who we are. The story of the incarnation is a story of origins. It tells us how things began. And so John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning, and you have to know very little about the Bible to know that he is going back to Genesis chapter 1. John has in mind that what Jesus is doing at Christmas is restarting what he did at the beginning of time. And so he simply says, this is a story about your origins. In the beginning, this is what happened. So let's go back to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. He created every living thing, but he spoke them into existence. But when he came to a human being on the sixth day, he did not speak him into existence. He got down and he took his hands and he started to fashion the human being with his hands. This one took time and attention. He seemed to be maybe a little more devoted to this act of creation than any other. And when he had finally formed the human being out of the dust of the ground, he bent even further and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a spirited being. Now back to the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the same as God in the beginning. Now watch the next line. Through him, that is the Word, all things were created. 
Nothing was created that he did not create. John wants to remind you that the one who stooped down and used his hands to form the human being from the ground into a human being in his own likeness was none other than the word himself is Jesus. Athanasius says you have to remember that God performed every act of creation through the Son. So that when you were first formed by God, you were not formed in the image of God in general. You were formed into the image of the Son who made you. That is who you are. And that's where you came from. He is the picture of what it means to be a human being. Back to Genesis. You okay toggling? Right after that happened, a serpent snuck into the garden and said to the man and his wife, God knows that in the day you eat of this, you should be like God, knowing good from evil. So we ate it and we fell. Wanting to become superhuman, we became inhuman. Wanting to be more, we became less. God picked us up and moved us outside of the garden and shut the gate put an angel there with a sword flashing it so we could not get back in. But when we were outside the garden, what we lost was not just the garden, we lost our God. We lost the picture of what it means to be human. The real human was inside the garden with the gate shut and we could not see it anymore. So we turned to look at each other and created what it means to be human by talking to ourselves. We looked at each other. And people, we've been doing this now for a really long time and for the life of me, I can't figure out out here east of Eden, what it means to be a human being. Is it a blessing or is it a curse? Is it something I use to excuse my imperfections and my moral failures so that when something goes wrong, I simply say, I'm only human. Don't put the blame on me. I mean, 16 times in one song. I'm not perfect, okay? I'm just human. So does humanity mean in that case <laughs> that I'm flawed and full of imperfections, more or less left to myself on the law of averages? To err is human, I say, and yet out here east of Eden, the more I err, the less human I become. Now why is that? 
If to err is what it means to be human, then the more you did it, the more human you would be. But in fact, the more you do it, the less human you are. So this week, Sumter Township outside of Detroit, a mother in her early 20s who tortured then killed a four-year-old was given a life sentence by a judge who said, what you did is not the behavior of a mother. I'm not even sure it's the behavior of a human being. So I don't get it. Out here east of Eden, is humanity supposed to be something I use to explain my failures or is humanity something I'm supposed to live up to? I don't get it. Or is it sort of just a law of averages there when I need it? Can somebody help me? It's like trying to figure out the puzzle without seeing the box. The box is inside the garden with the gate shut. But here we are outside trying to throw pieces together and what makes it worse is every now and then some trend or some personality will come and throw in pieces to the puzzle that don't belong at all. And we're trying to figure out who in the world are we? Let's go back to John. You okay? Then the word who created us became flesh. Right in front of us. He came and lived out true humanity in the midst of our humanity. You have time for a very brief theology lesson here? I promise this will be about 60 seconds long. What that means is that God, without ever ceasing to be God, became what he created in order to reconcile it. Let me say that in slow motion. This person who came and lived among us was not a human being who was separate from God, nor was he a God who was separate from a human being. The one who lived and walked among us was the perfect revelation of God as he is even now and at the same time, the perfect revelation of who you were at one time into one being. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our man, you got it. You got it. So what we have in Christ is true humanity. And when he came... He did not come simply to reveal it. He did not come simply to model it. He came into your humanity, not some other humanity, in order to take your humanity into himself and transform it. He took what was impure into himself and makes it pure. He takes what is dead into himself and it comes alive. He takes what is far off and can't get through the gate into himself and it is near, it is with us, 
in this world, we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is the miracle of the incarnation. Don't you dare minimize it, please, to anything less than that. Do not make Jesus fully human any different human than you are. Do not say he came from a Virgin Mary who had no original sin. Do not say he came from a woman and not a man. Therefore, he is a different kind of humanity. None of us say he came into this world as my humanity into my humanity so that he might redeem my humanity. That's the story, the mystery of the gospel. Wow, that's powerful. Now, what does this mean? Two things. It means that a lot of things that I've been chalking off as only human aren't. They're inhuman. But I've been calling them human in order to live with myself. So you have to take people a hard look at your life and ask yourself, what is yet part of my humanity that is not part of his? If you can't see Jesus doing it, cut it out. Is that easy enough? Don't excuse it. Don't rationalize it. Don't compare it to everybody else living outside the gate east of Eden. Look at Jesus and ask yourself whether or not it belongs in your personality. There's a tendency I'm finding the older we get to become more entrenched in our ways. That's just the way I am. Not the way he was. The second thing that it means is that maybe we are supposed to endure some things that we keep trying to be rid of. On the one hand, it means we gotta let go of things we keep holding on to. And on the other hand, it means we gotta hold on to some things we try to let go of because we cannot imagine those things happening to God, but what if they did? If Jesus were living on earth today, fully human, is it possible he would contract cancer? Is it possible he would pray? Is it possible that it would not be healed? Is it possible that he would apply for a job, get it, and not get promoted, then released because he simply couldn't do the job? Is it possible that Jesus 
would give birth to children that did not live? Could he be married to someone who abandoned him? These are unthinkable for us. They are the very things we want God to change, to fix in our lives. And yet when you look at Jesus, you see him holding all of them. Many of these things are done to us by inhuman beings, but they do not make us inhuman. And so we carry them. And so this morning, I give you those two questions. When you look at Jesus as he is and not as you imagine him to be, what are you still holding on to that you should be rid of? And two, what do you keep trying to be rid of that he calls you to hold on to?